You can be seated. This is the time in our service that we spend um, speaking the Word of God um, from the Scriptures. We work our way through books of the Bible, and currently we're working our way through the Gospel of John. We go start the beginning and work our way till we get to the end. And so we're in the midst of a, a kind of a conversation Jesus is having the Sunday before his execution. It's in John chapter 12. We're going to focus in on verse 31 through 34, but I'm going to back up the reading to verse 27. Starting in verse 27. John chapter 12, verse 27. Jesus says, Now my soul has become troubled. And what shall I say, Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came out of heaven. I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. So the crowd of people stood by and heard it uh, and heard it were saying that it had thundered. Others were saying an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, This voice has not come for my sake, but for your sakes. And then the verses we'll focus in on this morning. Now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. But he was saying this to indicate the kind of death by which he was to die. The crowd then answered him, We have heard out of the law that the Christ is to remain forever. And how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? This is God's word. Let's ask him for help in understand, and understanding it and applying it to our lives. Lord God, we need your grace. Lord, your spirit illuminates our minds, moves our heart and our will, and we desperately need that this morning. So we ask, Spirit of the living God, to teach us, instruct us in your holy word, to give us a love for Jesus and a will that is desiring to obey Him so that you might be glorified. In Jesus' name, Amen. Sometimes the most entertaining part of a boxing match is not the actual boxing match itself, but is the weigh-in that takes place before the boxing match. <clears throat> because it is there at the weigh-in where each of these boxers <clears throat> probably immodestly is down to the bare minimum, has to weigh in, and all the press and media are there giving attention to these two men. And it's there <clears throat> that they begin to open their mouths, begin to jaw at one another, and begin to make predictions. Predictions related to the fight. Guaranteeing the outcome, <clears throat> guaranteeing tremendous pain to be inflicted upon their opponent. Now, the Lord Jesus is here the Sunday before the big match. And he's, in a very real sense, making some predictions. He's, if you will, talking trash. He's saying, What's going to happen? What's going to take place? This is how it's going to go down. And in that we get a window, a preview into his cross work. A preview that really began earlier on in the chapter and starting with his triumphal entry into Jerusalem on that donkey where, where he was not coming as the anticipated freedom fighter to strip off the yoke of Roman bondage, but coming as a lowly servant on a donkey ready to offer peace to the nations. <clears throat> and here, 
after this, these Greeks come to Jesus, and this immediately signals that Jesus uh, saying that the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And this is Jesus' speaking about the cross and what the cross that He's going to endure in the, uh, later on this week. And we saw last week uh, something of the glory of the cross in the previous verses that we looked at as he anticipates this, the, the anguish of the cross. In verse 27, his soul had become troubled. He was in tremendous anguish. And he was even tempted to ask the Father to save him, to deliver him from bearing the wrath that he would endure upon the cross. But then he resolves that it was for this very purpose that he came to the cross. We also saw here that this was his great mission. This was his purpose in going to the cross. This is, the cross is not uh, something that's peripheral in the life and ministry of Jesus. It's, it's center stage. It's the grand event. And then we also saw the attestation of the cross, namely that the Father speaks from heaven that he is going to that he has glorified his name and will glorify his name through the cross. And that, that's where we pick up in this discussion here in verse 31, where Jesus now gives some further instruction and preview about what is going to take place in the next couple days through the cross. He says in verse 31. Now, judgment is upon the world. And this is what I'm calling the indictment of the cross, or you might title it the condemnation of the cross. And, and it kind of seems strange to think of, it, think of it like that. The indictment of the cross, you know, when somebody is indicted in court, this is when charges are brought against them. When we think of the term condemnation, it's, it's a very negative term. You may be thinking, well, I thought the cross was where salvation took place. Deliverance. Where Jesus takes the sins of others. He takes the punishment and guilt that we deserve upon a, on His own back. And that is true. It is. But whenever there is deliverance in the Bible, there's also condemnation. And the reality is is that it is through the cross because in the cross Jesus is going to deliver people from the guilt and punishment of hell that it's also at the cross some will not be delivered from the punishment of hell. I mean, think of it just even in this very context. It is Caiaphas himself who says uh, earlier on in this chapter that it's, it's better for one man to die on behalf of the rest. It's better, it's more expedient to sacrifice this one man. It's for the good of the nation. And, and when he said this, he, he spoke in a very real sense ignorantly. He didn't realize what he was saying. He was prophesying the death of Jesus on behalf of his children. But, but the point being is that the death of Jesus, the cross, the hour that was about to take place, would be an indictment against Caiaphas. Who in a very real sense is representative of the world. The, the, the world throughout the Gospel of John is often used, it's used in a variety of ways, but it's often used in a very negative sense, right? The world as that system of unbelief. The world in its state of fallenness and railing against the Creator. This is laid out early on in the Gospel of John when I think it's in verse 10 where it says that He was in the world and the world was made through Him. But what? The world did not recognize Him. It's this world that Jesus is speaking of, this world that does not recognize Jesus, that Jesus says, now the hour has come for judgment upon the world. And as I mentioned earlier, this is always God's way. Whenever He brings salvation, He also brings judgment. If you go all the way back to the days of Noah... Noah, where God rescued Noah and his three sons and their wives and delivered them through the waters of the flood, through the ark. 
He also is bringing condemnation. In Genesis chapter 19, when God was going to deliver Lot and his family uh, through these angels, God was also bringing His hammer of judgment upon those cities of the plain of Sodom and Gomorrah. When God was going to deliver His Hebrews out of Egypt through these, uh, through, through the, the amazing parting of the water and, and what we know as the Exodus to bring them into the promised land, He was also bringing His hammer of judgment down upon the Egyptians. In the days of Joshua when he's delivering the Israelites, bringing them finally into the promised land, there was all those city-states around there where he's bringing his hammer of judgment upon the Canaanites who inhabited that land. We see it in that famous account of David and Goliath, right? As, as God delivers the Israelites from the Philistines, he also brings the severed head of Goliath. This is always God's method. And so it would make sense that in the days of Jesus, at the hour when the showcase showdown is about to take place, and He's about to deliver sinners from the guilt of hell, He's also going to be bringing His hammer of judgment upon the world of unbelief. Because it is in this saving act of Jesus upon the cross that those who do not believe and embrace this saving act, that they seal their own doom. They seal their own eternity in hell forever. The saying goes that Jesus saves. And that's true. But just as much as Jesus saves, Jesus also damns. The same Jesus who pardons also punishes. The same Jesus who rescues is also filled with wrath. The same Jesus who delivers people to heaven also damns people to hell. You may be sitting there and thinking, well, not my Jesus. Well, friend, if your Jesus doesn't damn people to hell, then, let me say this as gently as I can, your Jesus doesn't exist. He's a figment of your own imagination. He doesn't exist. Listen to John's record of Jesus in Revelation 14, 10, 11. He will also drink, speaking of those who, who are rejecting Jesus and taking the mark of the beast in the latter times, He will also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength of the cup of His anger, and He will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels, in the presence of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they will have no rest day or night. Did you hear what I read there in verse 10? They will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. The Lamb. Speaking of Jesus. And speaking of Jesus in that metaphorical way of the Lamb who is the sacrificial Lamb, the one who absorbed the punishment of hell but now is the warden in hell. That's sobering. That's a sobering reality. This same kind, gentle, and lowly Jesus who comes riding on a donkey with an overture of peace to the world also says, now in the cross, judgment is upon the world. In other words, Jesus is saying, for those who reject this plea deal, this offer on the table, you can be forgiven of all your sins. You can, 
experience newness of life. You can have a place at the table. You can have the promise of eternal life forever and ever if you trust in Jesus and turn from your rebellion, follow after Him. This is the promise. Jesus says, but if you reject this promise, judgment is upon you. And forever so. And friends, think of it, the context here. We, we've just talked about in, in verse 27, Jesus' tremendous anguish of soul as He was about to go to the cross. His anguish of soul that was related not as much to the physical sufferings that He was going to endure, but more so to the cup of the full fury of God's wrath that He was about to drink. That's what He did on behalf of sinners. That's what He did on behalf of rebels like you and I. And if God did not spare His own Son, but forced Him to drink the full cup of His wrath, if God did that to His own Son, what will He do to those who reject what His Son has done? Will He be less severe with you? Well, He tells us what He will do. I read it for you in Revelation 14. And so friend, if you are sitting here this morning and you are part of the world, you've not been delivered out of the world to become one of Jesus' own followers, I do not say this with any malice or with any glee, but judgment is upon you. Judgment. The, the Damocles sword is hanging over your head and it's only a matter of time. But you don't have to fear judgment. If you would but take the plea deal that is offered on the table, that this Jesus would drink the cup of God's wrath. He would bear the sentence of hell. He would endure the wrath of the Father so that you could be forgiven forever and ever and have the joy of eternal life here and now. And so, friend, if judgment hangs over you, don't delay. Turn to Christ. Young people, I know you've heard this over and over, a thousand times over, but you need to lay hold of it for yourself. If you do not lay hold of it for yourself, you do so to your own damnation. So don't delay. Turn to Christ. Judgment would be upon this world. And also, let us be mindful as Jesus utters that now judgment is upon this world. This world, for those of you who are believers, you have been set apart from this world only to go back to this world. That's the language that Jesus uses in John chapter 17 as He's praying. As he's, he, he's, he's even, even uh, several days after this, He's praying for His disciples and He's about to go to the cross. Later that morning He says, I do not, in John seventeen fourteen, I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world sanctify them in the truth. That means to set them apart. Set them apart from the world. Your word is truth. And then Jesus says in verse 18, as you have sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. Jesus pulls us out of the world, rescues us from the world to send us on a mission back to the world. It's the mission of Jesus. He was in the world, and the world was made through Him, and the world did not recognize Him, but He was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So friends, I, I understand it's easy as we see the curtain being closed further and further upon this world around us as we see the darkness surrounding us as a temptation to want to circle the wagons, move to the mountains. But this is our mission field. This is the heartbeat of Jesus 
to have an open hand towards this lost and perishing world. And yes, if there is a refusal of this offer of grace, the sentence will be final, it will be deliberate, and it will be severe. But as the older writers used to say, that the judgment of God is His strange work. It's His strange work. He delights to show mercy. That's the condemnation of the cross or the indictment of the cross. Secondly, the expulsion of the cross. Look at the second part of verse 31. After he says that now judgment is upon the world, he says again, as Jesus is is looking to the cross at the end of the week, as he's in a sense saying how it's going to go down, in verse 31 he says, now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And again, similar to this judgment upon the world, uh, the, the judgment of the world takes place in, in a very real sense in stages. You know, each unbeliever in the world, when they die, there is a kind of a judgment, a sentencing to a present hell, but there's also a future judgment of this world and the second coming. There's also a great white throne of judgment. And in a similar way, when it comes to this casting out of the ruler of this world, it's in segments, just as much as what he says in, in, uh, in a minute, where he says, when he is lifted up, he will draw all men to himself. That doesn't take place immediately. That didn't happen in 33 AD where all men were drawn to Him. No, Jesus is still today drawing men to Himself. And so it says the ruler of this world will be cast out. Now you may read that and say God's going to be cast out? I mean, I thought God was the ruler of this world. Well, yes, God is the King. God is the Sovereign. He's the Creator, the Almighty. Jesus Himself is King. But you know that's not what Jesus is talking about here, right? That Satan or the adversary is given a realm of dominion in this present world, in this fallen world as it is. In fact, three times in the Gospel of John, Satan is called the ruler of this world. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 4.4 calls Satan the God of this age who has blinded the mind of the unbeliever. In Paul in Ephesians chapter 2 says, And you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to what? The prince of the power of of the air, the spirit who is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And just in case you think that's a fiction, remember when when Jesus is going toe-to-toe with Satan in the desert, you remember Satan himself in Matthew chapter 4 and verse 8, it says the devil took him to a very high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory and said, all these things I will give to you if you fall down and worship me. And so Satan is given quite a long leash in this world to be regarded as ruler of this world, the prince of this world, the prince of the power of the air, the god of this age. But here Jesus says, He's about to be cast out. Now, the ruler of this world will be cast out. Now, again, it should cause us to pause and think, well, the Apostle Paul, writing after the cross, calls Satan the god of this age. He calls him the prince of the power of the air. Peter, in 1 Peter 5, says Satan prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Doesn't sound like he's cast out. (laughs) Well, again, what Jesus is saying here is the event of the cross is going to seal the deal on Satan, but there is a not yet aspect 
to this casting out. Again, just as much as the drawing of all men happens in progression, so it is with Satan. So, for instance, uh, we, we can read the book of Revelation and find out that in Revelation chapter 20, that Satan is incarcerated for a thousand years. We can read Revelation chapter 21, uh, where I think it's in verse 10, where it says, And the devil who deceived him was thrown into the lake of fire. So that ultimately, the final sentence of Satan being cast out will be in the future, not only from when Jesus is speaking, but even from now. But there is a progressive casting out of Satan here and now, and ultimately in the future. Well, how so? Well, every time a believer somebody is redeemed and becomes a believer, all of a sudden, the handcuffs of Satan are taken off. The shackles are loosed. And a person is no longer in bondage to Satan. Remember, again, the language of Ephesians 2. And you were dead in trespasses and sins. Paul's talking to believers. In which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who is now at work in the sons of disobedience. In verse 4, But God, being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, made us alive and raised us up in the heavenlies, seated with Christ, so that a person is no longer in bondage to Satan. Now, now sometimes people, you know, and at least this is the way Hollywood, you know, often presents it, somebody being tempted to sell their soul to the devil, right? The reality is, is he already owns you if you're not a Christian, <laughs> You ain't selling nothing because you're already owned. Okay? You can't sell your soul to the devil if you're not a Christian because you already are in shackles to him. Now, it's not like you might be a full-blown Satan worshiper and that's part of the genius of Satan. That's part of his brilliant scheme. He often presents himself in false religions. He often presents himself... Well... Paul says he masquerades as what? An angel of light. And so his best plan is for a person not to know that they're in bondage to him. And so each time a person believes, each time a sinner is redeemed, Satan is driven out a little bit further, but then eventually incarcerated for a thousand years and eventually cast into the lake of fire that burns with brimstone forever and ever. And it's at the cross that the head of Satan is cut off, but he still wiggles around like a snake, still trying to do as much damage as he can, but his end is sealed at the cross. And this is what Jesus is doing here. In a very real sense, He's talking trash. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And friends, this is, this is part of a grand theme in Scripture. And, and this is where we see the cross as a huge momentous event in this great grand scheme. Because it starts way back in the Garden of Eden, right? In the Garden of Eden, the serpent comes to Eve and the serpent, we know, is Satan. And he comes and tempts Eve and, and says, did God really say? And, 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 and he tells Eve that she, she's not going to die. You know, God's not really going to punish you for eating of that fruit. The same kinds of lies we hear today. There's not a real hell. And the serpent continues with his temptation in verse 4. He says, You will not surely die. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, you will be like Him, knowing good and evil. And Satan seduces Adam and Eve, and Adam partakes as he's right there with 
her. But then you remember in Genesis 3, immediately on the heels of that, right after God begins cursing both Adam and Eve and the serpent. And God in cursing the serpent says in Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you, talking to the serpent, and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. Here's this forecasting that God says that there is going to be a seed of the woman, a seed of the serpent. And when you follow the the rest of the Bible, there's looking for that seed, namely the seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent. And so you read the rest of Genesis, it's all, who's that seed? Is it Noah? Is it Abraham? No, not them. And it's all waiting. And then finally... The veil is pulled back and it's clear by the time we get to the New Testament. The seed is Jesus. He is the one who crushes the head of the serpent. He is the great serpent crusher. And He does it at the cross. Augustine, writing on this verse, says, The devil kept possession of mankind, holding men as criminals bound over to punishment by the handwriting, uh, by the handwriting of their sin, having dominion over the hearts of the unbelieving, dragging them deceived and captive to, to the worship of the creature for which they had deserted the Creator but by faith in Christ, confirmed by His death and resurrection, through His blood shed for the remission of sins, thousands of believing persons obtain deliverance from the dominion of the devil and are joined to the body of Christ and quickened by by His Spirit as faithful members under so great a head. This is that He called the judgment, the casting out. Think about Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same, that through death he might destroy the one who had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Jesus, through His death, delivers people from the shackles of Satan, which here He describes as the fear of death. Friends, you want to know why the world is in an apoplectic panic right now? The fear of death. Because they don't know Jesus who delivers people from the fear of death. He's the one who dealt the great death blow to Satan at the cross and through His resurrection proving He has authority over death. We saw it here in in John chapter 11 as He raised Lazarus from the dead. That was a a kind of order before the main event. Friend, Satan will be cast out. And there's a great reversal that's taking place here. Because you remember it was Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden through the serpent who were cast out. But one day it will be reversed and God's people will be in the new Eden and Satan will be cast out. Friend, this is the hope and confidence we can live our lives in light of. The certainty that this is not how it will always be. The hope this is not the end of the story. That we can have an optimistic understanding of the future.
Now, it may be the near horizon may get worse and worse. I don't know. I am not the prophet nor the son of a prophet. But the end game, it's good. Revelation 21, 4 and 5, And God Himself will be with them as their God. And He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death will be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. The curse will be reversed. And it all started at the cross. So friend, you having a crummy day? You discouraged by all the mess we're bombarded with daily going on in the world? Be encouraged this morning. It'll get better one day. You have one of those days like I had yesterday where everything seems to go exactly the opposite of the way you wanted it to go. You're planning for it to go and all your plans are foiled and you just want to hold on to those plans and make sure everybody knows how angry you are. Just let go. You're not in control of the future. But God is. So, we've seen the condemnation of the cross or the indictment of the cross. We see the expulsion of the cross, namely the ruler of this world will be cast out. Thirdly, what I'm calling the application of the cross. This is the, this is the more positive aspect uh, In verse 32, Jesus says, And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to Myself. But He was saying this to indicate the kind of death which He was to die. Jesus says, And I, if I am lifted up. So again, it's very clear, Jesus and all of His thoughts are towards the cross. He's talking about how He's going to die. He says, I, if I am lifted up from the earth. Now, we, we've, we've talked about this in previous teachings here in John 12. John, more than any of the other gospel writers, speaks of the cross as Jesus' exaltation. And there's a kind of a, a play on words here that John often uses. In fact, uh, scholars have come up with a name for it. They call it Johannine irony. Or, uh, or if you like the word, a double entendre. It's a double meaning where lifted up speaks of his death by crucifixion. He's suspended between heaven and earth on a Roman stick but it also, lifting up, refers to being exalted. So, there's a very literal way in which Jesus is lifted up, but also in a very figurative way, this is His coronation. This is His throne, that Roman cross. And so Jesus, and and this isn't the only time John uses this language. Remember uh, Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus in John chapter 3, 14 and 15, where Jesus says, just as the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, so also the Son of Man will be lifted up and everyone who believes in Him will have eternal life. Serpent lifted up, Jesus lifted up. It's also used in John chapter 8 and verse 28 where Jesus says, when you, when you lift up the Son of Man, you will know that I am He. So again, Jesus is, is thinking about what's going to happen several days after this. When I'm lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to Myself. And also you notice there's a little bit better understanding of this lifting up in verse 33 than we've seen earlier on in the Gospel of John. Namely, they're starting to get it. He's talking about his death. But he was saying this to indicate the kind of death by which he was to die. So, Jesus says, when I'm lifted up, speaking of the cross, I will draw all men, or literally all, to myself. Now, when we read this, so 
It's kind of a curious thing, right? Jesus is going to draw all men. Well, but not everybody goes to Jesus, right? What does Jesus mean by this? Is Jesus a, a kind of a universalist in the sense saying that everybody is going to be drawn to Him? Well, first let's focus on the word draw to try to rightly understand what Jesus means by draw. This word draw is used multiple times in the Gospel of John. It, it, it's always used of speaking of overcoming a resistance, okay? To bring to yourself by overcoming a resistance. In John chapter 8 and verse 10, uh, Peter, uh, as Jesus is getting arrested, uh, he draws out his sword and chops off the ear of Malchus. So he's pulling out his sword. He's overcoming the resistance of gravity and the, the sheath or whatever was holding his sword and he draws it out. It's used in John chapter 21 several times. Of Remember, uh, Peter and the disciples are out fishing, not catching anything. And Jesus tells them to put the net on the other side of the boat. They realize, oh, it's Jesus. We've been through this before. And all of a sudden, John records that there was 153 fish, I think is the number, that, that, that like dive into the net. And they're drawing the net. They're pulling the net. It's also used, probably most famously, in John chapter 6 in verse 44, where Jesus says, No one can come unto me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It's that last sense that is used most clearly parallel here, so that this is a kind of effective drawing that in John 6, the Father does. Here in John 12, the Son is doing. He's drawing people to Himself. Now, you'll notice the word all there. Now, some people will say all means all, and that's all that it ever means. That's a very naive understanding of the word all. All, you always have to look at all in its context. Is all speaking of every single person without exception? Well, I think we would say safely, no, that's not what Jesus means. Let me give you a couple other options. It seems to me, now, this verse, I will have you to know, it's used sometimes as what I call an alligator verse. You know what an alligator verse is? It's a verse that, you know, you lay out 50 verses to demonstrate a theological position and somebody lays out an alligator verse and that's supposed to just gobble up all those 50 other verses and nullify everything that they mean. Okay? Well, you need to... We need. It's probably not the best way to handle the Scripture, right? Uh, so this, use, this is often used as an alligator verse, especially for John 6.44, where Jesus said, No one comes unto me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And then they'll say, Well, you go to John 12.32. He clearly draws every single person without exception. Well, if draws used in the same sense in which it is in 6.44, it can't be every single person without exception, or every single person without exception would be a believer, Right? So it seems best to understand this, the all in the sense of all kinds of people. Or maybe even all in the sense of John 6.37, Jesus says, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and anyone who comes to me I will in no wise cast out. But the all certainly in this context would seem to suggest an all in the sense of not merely for the Jewish people, but as Caiaphas unwittingly said earlier on in the passage, the scattered children of God. Or as John records in the book of Revelation chapter 5, where Jesus dies to purchase a people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. Because, again, let me remind you, who is there in this very context? Who's listening? Who approached Jesus back in chapter 12 and verse 20? The Greeks. The Greeks are there. The Greeks are there. Gentiles, non-Jewish people, which again, in our thing, well, no big deal, you know. But 
in the course of redemptive history where God has been working with the Jewish people primarily for thousands of years, this is a big deal. This is huge. So then when Jesus says, I, when I am lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. He's saying, again, something tremendous is going to take place. I'm going to go public with this. I'm going to not be merely dealing with the Jewish people, but I am going to draw people from every tongue, tribe, and nation, and I'm going to effectively draw them to myself. And again, back to the trash talking here. Jesus is saying, this is how it's going to go down. This is how it's going to take place. I will have a people after my own name. I will have a people who will be drawn to me. They will come to me. So again, we can't have a view of Jesus as a Jesus kind of wringing His hands, hoping that everything turns out okay. No, a triumphant Jesus who according to Isaiah 53 sees His offspring and is satisfied. Because the mission was accomplished. And the application of redemption, yes, will take place throughout the course of all of human history until Jesus eventually comes back. But every single one whom Jesus intends will come to Him. Not one will be lost. Not one. And so... For us today, this should bring a sense of joy and consolation. And you may be sitting here thinking, well, this is saying I was drawn to Jesus. Did I come to Jesus or was I drawn to Jesus? Yes. But there is an order of priority. You came to Jesus because He drew you. Right? John says, we love. Why? Because He first loved us. It's the order of grace. It's not, well, let me just pull a little bit harder trying to get to God and then maybe He'll draw. No. No. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. Dead people don't come. (laughs) But you were made alive and you came and He drew. This is God's grace. We don't deserve it. Now notice the response of the, those listening here. <clears throat> this is a mixed crowd of Jewish and Greek people and it says in verse 34, the crowd then answered him, we have heard out of the law that the Christ is to remain forever. How could you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? Now I love the way John does this <clears throat> because again, these people are speaking... Better than they know, right? Much like Caiaphas earlier on in the chapter. Much like many people throughout the Gospel of John. The crowd is saying, we've heard out of the law that the Christ is to remain forever. I don't think we need to take the law in a very narrow sense as the Ten Commandments or even necessarily the first five books of the Bible. Sometimes the law just speaks of all of God's instruction in the first 39 books. That... If we're reading our Bibles rightly, the Christ is to remain forever. And think of it. Think of some of the great messianic passages of the Old Testament. It does speak of a forever king and a forever kingdom. Right? Isaiah 9.6 For a child will be born to us, a son will be given, and the government will rest upon his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal, Forever, Father, Prince of Peace, and there will be no end to the increase of His government or of peace on the throne of David and over His kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. A forever kingdom with a forever king. Psalm 89, 35-37 Once I have sworn by my holiness I will not lie to David, his descendants shall endure Forever and the throne as the sun before me, it shall be established forever like the moon and as in in the witness in the sky. And, And there's others as well. But so here's these these Jewish people saying, Well, doesn't the law say, doesn't the scripture say that Messiah will remain forever? And you're saying you're going to be lifted up. 
What's the answer? A resurrection. They finished the story for Jesus. A resurrection. He's going to rise from the dead. That's how He is God's forever King with a forever kingdom, a ruler on the throne of David who would live forever and ever. But notice again the language that they use here. They're using language of Christ, the anointed King, but also they say, how can you say that the Son of Man will be lifted up? Son of Man. This is a phrase we've seen over and over which harkens back to Daniel chapter 7 with Daniel prophesies of this coming king. But it goes back earlier to that way back again to the Garden of Eden. Because one who is a son of man, one who is a Ben Adam, is a son of Adam, a descendant of Adam. And so again, this group of people is speaking better than they know. That a descendant of Adam who would be a king like Adam, perhaps you didn't know that, but Adam was a kind of a king in the Garden of Eden. He was given what? Dominion over the world. And this other son of Adam, he would be like Adam, but he would not sin like Adam. And there would also, like Adam, be a garden in which he would be tempted. Not the Garden of Eden, but the Garden of Gethsemane. And it would be there in Gethsemane that the Lord Jesus would be tempted to disobey the order of the Father. But Jesus would resolve He would resolve to continue to go to the cross to bear the sins of sinners. And in doing that, judgment would be upon the world. The ruler of the world would be cast out. And sinners would be drawn to Jesus. Let's pray. Lord God Almighty, we thank You and praise You for our champion, the Lord Christ. Lord, I know this is uh, a lot for us to think about. But Lord, we rejoice in You over this glorious event of the cross and the way in which Jesus said how it was going to go down and it went down exactly as He said. Lord, I pray for anyone in this room who's not yet trusted in the Son of Man, the Lord Jesus, that they would put their hope and confidence in Him and experience that deliverance of the ruler of this world, that deliverance from the power of sin, but also the pardon that we find in the Gospel. In Jesus' name, Amen. We're going to close by singing.